Hey, welcome everybody. This is Tom Benty, the Tom Benty Media Podcast, and I am here with lovely Julie Immerman. Uh, she is a singer and uh, media person from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. So I met Julie on LinkedIn. We had a nice conversation via Zoom for uh, business purposes uh, just a few days ago. And, and while we were on that conversation, Julie uh, you know, just started talking a little bit about uh, her history. And, and it turns out she's a, actually a really proficient singer. And she has a really great and long career in singing. And she studied at USC. She studied opera at USC. And I was like, wow, you, you, know, you have a lot of really cool stories to tell. I love your creative outlook and your creative approach. It would be great if you came on the podcast. So here we are. So uh, thank you so much, Julie, for being uh, with us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, so, you know, when I, we were talking on, um, on our Zoom call a few days ago, it, it really seems like you have a passion for music. And I was really intrigued by that. And I like to bring on people that have that passion for creative arts because that's a big part of my life. And how did you get into music? Like, is this something you got into as a child? What was that process like for you? Yeah, so pretty much as soon as I could talk, I was a singer and I told everybody I was a singer. I remember being like four years old. I actually broke my nose because I was singing and performing for my father's friends. They had like some dinner party and I was spinning around um, and that was my dance at the time. And I ran into a bar stool and broke my nose. So that's fun. Probably wasn't a fun party for them after that with a screaming four-year-old. But um, yeah, just after that, I mean, as I grew up, I realized I really, wow, I really do have a voice. But I just think it's so funny that I was very adamant, just like as a little kid telling everybody, I'm a singer. And um, I just, they would just bring me in and have me perform for everybody. So by the time I was, I want to say my first experience on camera was I was six years old and we were on a family vacation and it was one of those places where you could like record like a music video, like it's kind of hilarious, but for some reason they had the studio set up and we were there with our cousins and we decided we were all going to perform together at the last minute, everybody else bailed out. And they, my mom was like, well, do you still want to do it? And I said, yeah. So I performed, I want to dance with somebody. I couldn't read yet. So the prompter had, I remember the words at the top and it's like hilarious, the video, because I saw it recently, like a disco ball behind me, like very 80s. So it's hilarious. And I performed the whole song. And then at the end, I just like laughed, but I wasn't scared. I was just, I was really into it. So. So, wow. So that's really young, four, four years old to know that music is going to be a big part of your life at that age, I think is, is yeah. pretty remarkable. Um, when, you, when you're that young, you know, who, who were some of your influences that you just, there had to be some sort of moment at that, at that young age where you realized like, hey, you know, this, this music, the, these songs that I'm hearing on the radio or on MTV, they're really impacting me. So what were some of those songs and who were some of those artists for you that really impacted you? Well, you know, I'm really lucky that my parents, um, they just had music playing all the time. So I was hearing all sorts of different artists growing up. Um, we'll say I was in love with Michael Jackson and I told everybody in my preschool class that he lived in my closet. And true story, you can ask my mom, they literally did a field trip to our house. We lived in Houston, Texas at the time to try and meet him. And I just like gave them excuses that he was like in the bathroom, but I was very adamant. <laughs> You know, because like he's so, he was incredible, right? Like the greatest of all time. Um, and then after that growing up, I mean, I remember Madonna, I used to love her songs, but um, I really gravitated more towards like Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston. Um, those are my favorite artists growing up. Um, yeah, 
So, and then I think I was probably eight or nine years old. I had my first experience in a recording studio. So um, randomly met and became friends with some young boy at like a summer camp and then his mom had a music studio and she had a company that recorded all these songs. It's called Kid Songs. So you know, like when you're in elementary school and you'd be doing like an art project and they would put on some music that was like ABCs or I don't know, whatever it was, kids singing. Well, they were like, oh, you're a singer. You should come and do some of these things. So I have like an old tape somewhere of me singing all sorts of different like nursery rhymes and stuff. And I was in a studio doing that. So um, I think my older sister, she got a little jealous. So they decided to pull her into that also. So it was like the three of us in there and we recorded like a whole album and it was, you know, played like all over the country. And it's very interesting because um, I think at some point my parents thought like, oh, wow, she really does, you know, enjoy doing this. So, yeah, that was my that's, first that, that's really cool. Um, and I know we, when we talked uh, a few days ago, you referenced that you went to the Grammys, I think, when you were um, in, a senior in high school. What was, right. what was that experience all about? And how did that come to be? Yeah, that was incredible. So the Naris Foundation and the Grammy Foundation together, um, they run a Grammy in the school's event. And I was in a regional choir that they had for a few years in high school. Um, I auditioned for it and they brought me in and I was one of like, 16 kids in Arizona, but after being in it for two years, they um, stopped doing the regional Grammy choirs and they opened up auditions to go to the Grammys to anybody in the country. So, um, you know, I found out what the requirements were. I put together my audition tape. I had to go. I filmed it at the U of A because I was living in Tucson at the time. And um, I remember there was a, they, you know, they gave you the sheet music and they told you what you were supposed to sing, but they kind of left it open-ended, like pick something you want to sing a cappella to showcase your talent. And then at the very end, they said for extra credit, if you want, you can do a transcription, which meant they gave you six different jazz artists to choose from because it was for a jazz choir that I was auditioning for. And if you wanted to, you had to sing exactly what the artist sang with the artist. And so I picked um, an Ella Fitzgerald scat called Good Enough to Keep, and I want to say it's like three or four minutes long, and I learned it in 24 hours because uh, I have photographic memory, so I can hear something and remember it, but it was such like an intricate scat, and it went on for so long, and it was something that she basically just freestyled. It wasn't something I could go find in sheet music, right? So I just had to like live and breathe that song for a full day. Like I had headphones on listening to it and I nailed it. So I found out later when I actually went to the Grammys and met everybody with the foundation, that's why they picked me. Cause I guess they were kind of blown away when they saw that portion of it. And uh, yeah, I actually saw the tape recently cause my parents took it and put it on DVD and I just was laughing. Cause I'm like, I just remember doing this and you know, I guess I nailed it, but felt really lucky to be a part of that group of people. I met some amazingly talented people. Everybody that was there is talented, but I've made some lifelong friends from that experience. So yeah, I was 17 years old and went to the Grammys. I was so young and naive at the time with like stars in my eyes, but it's funny. I, I didn't feel uncomfortable and I met so many incredible people. Like, so it was a 10 days, like all expense paid trip, you know, by the Grammy foundation, they picked 12 singers or well, maybe there was yeah, there was like 12 of us from around the country. I was the only person from Arizona that got to go, one of three Sopranos. And, you know, they posted us up at a hotel and we did all sorts of um, performances throughout the week. We went to the recording studio, like I was given a solo. So that was pretty cool. Like in one of the songs that we did, they also had a jazz band and a quartet. So there were other people flown in. Um, and I just really enjoyed meeting everybody. And uh, so every year the Naris Foundation, they will pick a legend to 
um, honor and they have a big event. It's like the night before the Grammys or a few nights before. And that year it was Stevie Wonder. So typically the only people that are allowed to go to this event are other celebrities. And, uh, but they let us go to this event. And, um, but I think just the choir. So it was just the 12 of us got to go. And I remember standing there and it was just kind of a surreal experience because literally everybody there was celebrities. Like I, I remember I saw Sting was standing near me and like with his wife, like Trudy Styler. And then later on in the evening, we were able to meet, you know, different people, but you know, cause we were guests there and we were really, we were all young, like high school kids. We think it was nice. Nobody was um, really trying to bother anybody, but I do remember that my friends were trying to take pictures with Mariah Carey and kind of following her around a bit. Um, and I just was like, okay, well, um, I'm not going to bother anybody. So at some point I got to meet Stevie. He was sitting down at his table in the middle of this ballroom and it was before the show started. And, um, I remember I wanted to say hello. And then Mariah walked up and she was like, excuse me. And leaned over to talk to him. And I was like, this is the, and then like Sting was laughing because he was close by. It was just like a very weird, like surreal experience. Um, and then later in the evening after some of the performances, um, we were able to kind of walk around and mingle with people. And my friends were freaking out saying, oh my gosh, we just met Pavarotti. And I was like, what? And I'm like, turn around. Because at that point I'd already been exposed to opera and had been studying it a bit. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like I have to find him. So I remember um, my friends, oh, he's over there. So I ran over to where he was and he had his big you know, bodyguards of him and he was walking away. So I tried to get his attention. And so I just yelled, Pavarotti. And so one of those guards turned around and he goes, uh, it's Mr. Pavarotti. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. Pavarotti. <laughs> and so he turned around and I just started like now when I get excited, like I was the same way, but probably talked even faster. Cause like as a kid, they, anyway, they called me motor mouth in third grade. It wasn't very nice. Talk pretty fast. So anyway, I just started blabbing at him and just telling him over and over, you're so amazing. And I've been studying opera and like, I'd love, you know, to be like you one day, you're just so incredible. And I just kept saying, you're so amazing. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy to meet you. And he started laughing like a huge belly laugh. And he was like, come, we take picture. And so this is back in the day where we didn't really have like our cell phones, right? I mean, we had them, but they didn't have cameras on them. So I remember I had a disposable camera and uh, he handed it, I handed it to like one of the waiters or somebody walking by and we took one picture and it came out perfect. I remember he put his arm around me and I was very excited because nobody else let them, he didn't let them like hold him or anything, put my hand on his belly and we took the picture. And then like, I remember they snapped the pic, they hand me back the camera and he starts laughing and he goes, you are amazing. And he walked off and I was like, Oh my god! <laughs> wow, wow, anyway, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing story for someone who's like 17 years old to just be experienced that amazing world. That that's remarkable. It was incredible. They actually, uh, my dad carries that photo around of me and Pavarotti in his wallet, like to this day. And um, it's funny because when I came back to high school, like after this amazing experience and meeting all sorts of people and performing and you know, really my first big experience in the music industry, it was like, how do you go back to regular high school after that, you know, and then you kind of like fit back into the background. Although I was always out doing something with dance and musical theater. And there's a choir at the U of A, you know, that I was involved in all through high school, but um, they did a bunch of write-ups on me, like in different newspapers and stuff. And a lot of them like published that picture, but I just, um, I just think it's funny. Like out of all the people I met, like that was back in the day when like, NSYNC was like huge. It was like Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, like, or coming out of like Britney Spears, like the end of that era. And uh, cause it was like 99, 1999. 
and all my friends were like, oh my God, did you meet Justin? And I was like, um, I met Pavarotti. Like, <laughs> I was excited about that. And they were like, okay, like my friends did meet Justin. I actually missed meeting him at the Grammy after party because believe it or not, they let us go to the Grammy Awards. We performed at the pre-Grammy Awards. And then we also went to the Grammy after party. So we were like all high school kids. Like I still looking back at it now, I'm like, uh, okay, we were like allowed to go there. And so friends were like running around and we had our chaperones and stuff, but um, it's just, so it's funny. It was a great experience though. So. Sounds like it. Yeah. That sounds just uh, like an amazing experience. So you mentioned yeah. you, you like Pavarotti because you were exposed to opera when you were, I guess, were in high school. And then I know you went to USC and you studied specifically opera. So what was that transition all about and why did, what, what, how did that love for opera come about as, you know, most kids in high school aren't thinking about opera, but how did you get involved in it? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I honestly wasn't thinking about it either. Like when I thought about singing in high school up until my junior year of high school, it was really everything else. It was musical theater. It was jazz. It was, you know, pop music that I would listen to. I never considered myself to be an opera singer, but once my voice started forming and I realized that I could hit these high notes, these whistle notes, I have a five octave range like Mariah Carey. So when I realized I had that kind of um, talent because my voice like just appeared out of nowhere, literally overnight, I was like, oh, this is such a gift. Um, my parents went out and found a voice coach for me. And then as I started moving up through high school and all the different things I was involved in, like with the, you know, the U of A concert choir and then the regional Grammy choir. And then when I went, when I went to the Grammys, they were like, okay, she, she, there's something special about her talent. So I really owe it to my parents for, you know, helping me. They've been so supportive. And um, my first voice teacher was an opera singer. So I worked with her. And then by the time I went to the Grammys and came back from that, that was, uh, you know, towards the end of my senior year of high school, um, I remember a great aunt of mine had found out about my talent. She lived in Los Angeles at the time and she really, you know, pushed my parents to send me to her. And she's like, I have some things I want to do. And so she introduced me to my voice teacher and he was a tenor at the time. I'm not sure if he's still there now, Jonathan Mack with the LA Opera. And he is the one who really just opened everything up for me. Like he was an incredible mentor and teacher. And when I um, started thinking about what I wanted my music career to look like, he really pushed for me to audition to go to USC. He told me he was a professor there and he would love to work with me. And I, you know, I had the talent. And um, so when I got accepted to USC and I got my scholarship there, I remember my first day of class with him and I got to see him privately for our lesson. I found out that he taught at all the LA schools. Okay. It wasn't just USC. <laughs> so it's like, uh, he's like, Oh, but I wanted you to go to USC because it's literally like one of the best music schools. So, um, yeah, I, I auditioned for a couple different schools. I think all the Arizona schools, USC, and then also university of Indiana, because at the time they were the number one school for opera, but I settled on USC because the minute I stepped on that campus, I just knew, right. I just was like, that was where I was supposed to be. And I really feel like those years that I had at school, there's really was nothing else like it. I had the best time. I was really lucky because um, as a voice teacher, he really let me do whatever I wanted to do. And, um, you know, there were other teachers there that really just told their students, like the other opera singers, you have to do these arias and you have to do these certain things and you can't, but he just let me be myself. He let me discover what was moving to me. What roles did I find 
you know, that I wanted to perform. And so when I put on my recitals and things, all of those songs for the most part that I sang, because you have a junior and a senior and a senior year recital, those were all really near and dear to my heart. So it meant so much to me. Like, remember the first time I heard this aria called The Puy Le Jour, um, I bawled my eyes out. So Renee Fleming is this incredible um, opera singer who really got her big break when she was an understudy for the Metropolitan Opera, I think in her like early 40s and she was the understudy and the lead got sick or something and she had to step in and that's how she had her big break. And I mean, when you when you hear her sing these songs, like I just cry, like it's so beautiful. So I had to practice a lot so I wasn't crying on stage <laughs> trying to sing these songs. So, so, um, so you were you were actually in operas at USC, they would actually put on operas and, and things oh yeah. like that. It was a big thing. It's funny because in high school, I was also really involved in theater. So straight theater, not even musical theater, which I did as well, but, um, very dramatic, I guess. I've always just loved the arts and I did a lot of dance as well. So when I started at USC The Maestro, he actually passed away, um, I wanna say possibly my senior year of college from cancer, it was very sad. But when I met him freshman year, cause you had to go meet him privately and audition for him and kind of explain who you are, he would decide, what role you would have. Most of the time, the big roles, they're gonna go to all the grad students, right? Because they have all the training, they're older, and they've worked their way up to being able to do the big roles. When you're starting out, you're lucky if you're allowed to be like in the chorus, in the opera, like and be considered for the bigger scenes. Well, he met me and he started learning about like all the, the drama and the, like Shakespeare competitions and all the stuff I did, you know, in high school, as well as the Grammys and stuff like that, which he didn't care about because that's jazz music. But when he heard like, oh, you won Shakespeare competitions national, he was like, oh, you're the actress. So as long as he was alive, he always joked with me that I was the actress and I got chosen for roles eventually that were very dramatic. Like in The Crucible, I was the girl that um, died and fell in the pit. Like I, oh, wow. <laughs> like people playing the orchestra and I like, leaned back and fell and it was very dramatic and it's really funny so and at this time so you were doing opera were you, were you also doing straight theater too or straight acting or are you just focused on the opera as well so it's interesting the one thing I realized when I got to school when I was in the opera program was that everybody was obsessed with opera anybody else that were in the classes with me that specifically were in the opera program they lived and they breathed and they slept opera but that was not me because I as much as I love opera and it's beautiful and I love the music and I love performing it, I always feel like there was so much more to myself and, you know, being an artist. I felt very boxed in because you can only sing what the composer wrote and you have to sing it how the composer wrote it. You can't go off and decide you want to sing something else. Now, sometimes there is another section um, of music that you can sing like um and possibly, and but there'll be a, they'll tell you in the score. So you'll look in the music and it'll say right here in this little box, if you want, you can maybe sing this, but otherwise you gotta sing this. Well, that's fun, but that just wasn't for me. So by the end of college, I just realized as much as I love opera, I don't see myself continuing. I love it, but I don't love it enough to wanna move my whole life to Europe and then continue and try to only sing opera. And I was lucky because my voice teacher, Jonathan, he was very supportive of that fact. I think he realized it pretty early on. He said to me, you can sing anything. Because I, we, I would go into lessons with him sometimes. I did some musical theater stuff in college. He let me, he wasn't against it. And he supported it. He knew that I did dance. I went to um, the Edge Performing Arts Center, which is like one of the top dance academies and dance schools, like in Los Angeles. Like I used to go there and take just straight dance classes, like things that other opera students were doing, like I was doing, because I loved 
um, expressing myself and being able to experience those different things. So I practiced musical theater with him, not just opera. And then by the time I graduated from college, I was like, what now? Because like I said, I wasn't gonna, the plan that I thought I had in my head, it had changed over those four years. And so most of your uh, fellow classmates that you said they're going to Europe to study, like to be full-fledged opera, they wouldn't, New York doesn't have that. It's, you have to go to the, uh, Europe. You don't have to go to Europe, but it's easier to break into opera in Europe and kind of get some roles under your belt. And then eventually you, the Mecca of opera in the U.S. is going to be, you know, in New York, it's going to be the Met hands down. But to get there, there's a lot of steps that you have to take including, you know, taking a semester and going to Europe and studying opera there. And I have like very close friends that that's what they did. Like senior year and junior year of college, they were taking off and I didn't see them for six months or longer because they were in Italy and they were performing opera over there and they were taking their courses over there. So I never did it because um, I kind of realized by junior year, I'm not exactly sure if this is where my path is taking me. Um, but yeah, that's typically what people do. So you, you, you graduate college, you, you yeah. know that even though you love opera, it's not something you could see yourself really dedicating yourself full time to because you have other interests. Mm -hmm. So what's, what's next after college? So I had to figure out what I was going to do. And I, I wasn't sure what that was going to be because I always just thought, you know, music is my life. The only thing that I can say makes me the happiest, at least when I graduated college and I knew was music. It was performing, singing. And I started to realize I had a knack for writing too. So I used to write things like journals. And it's kind of funny because recently I moved and I found some of my old journals from college and I was reading through them and I was laughing because I was like, oh, the drama in here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not even dramatic, but just like the different experiences I had. Like I talked about shows that I did and boys that I dated and just, you know, life experiences growing up. It's, uh, yeah, I'm like, oh, I probably could publish some of these things. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I stayed in LA for about eight months. Uh, yeah, eight or nine months after I graduated, I was working at Nordstrom's. I'm like, okay, I did not go to college and get a degree, you know, from USC to work at Nordstrom. Not that there's anything wrong with it. There isn't. It's just, I felt like there's more. I want to do more. And um, I was living with my best friend, who's also an opera singer. We were been best friends since our first day of college when I walked up to her and I said, we're going to be friends. <laughs> Listen, um, and she actually has a really interesting story. So you'll have to bring her on your podcast at some point because she's had record deals when she was younger and she grew up in the opera scene. So we were different in that regard because I didn't grow up in opera the way she did. She up in LA. But anyway, um, we lived together. And so it was really sad when I had to tell her I was leaving and I was moving back to Arizona. Um, but we still talk every day. She's my best friend. But anyway, I moved back here and, you know, I grew up as I call myself like a radio baby because my mom was a big VP um, in radio. So you know, when I was a kid, I used to go around all these different events that they have with like the on-air personalities. And I got to go to the studio and I got to, you know, go to like the water park and we were, they were there like doing a live broadcast and I got to see everything about it. So when I moved back to Arizona my mom was like, you know, you have a lot of qualities that I see in myself. I think, you know, maybe this is something you would want to do since you love music so much. Maybe we could bring you into radio, but she had already left and moved on to her second career. So she was no longer there, but she still knew a lot of people, of course, and people knew who she was. Um, and it just all kind of fell into place. So um, 
I started working at Clear Channel Radio, which is now iHeart, and I was like their youngest account executive I think they'd ever hired, but they knew my mom, so they were like, uh, you're going to be amazing because if you're like Linda, like we're here for it, so that was really flattering, and I realized pretty quickly that I had a knack for marketing and um, advertising, and uh, yeah, I did really well pretty quickly, and I loved it. I love working with clients, and I could still be really creative, and the fun part is, you know, I'm... I have the talent to write music, but now I can also write commercials and voice them. So I kind of got to use my talents, but in different ways. So that's, yeah. that's great. Yeah. I mean, that is similar with me. I mean, I started out as a narrative filmmaker and then I transitioned to uh, marketing and advertising videos, but I still do narrative filmmaking and it's, it's very similar. I don't know if you find it to be similar yeah. from songwriting for, for entertainment pur purposes and songwriting for marketing purposes. But from my perspective, marketing and um, advertising videos are very similar to narrative content. You, you have a message, you're trying to get that message across and you're trying to showcase that visually. Yeah. Now, I, you're still doing, you're still involved with music. You're still creating, and I, I know you just performed very recently. So um, yeah. what are you currently working on? Um, well, that's a great question. So, uh, well, we missed a huge part of my background, but- um, Yeah, no, let's, let's you said, uh, so eight, I'm sorry. So you're in LA eight months after you graduate and then you move back to Arizona. Yeah. And then I, radio. I lived out here for about a year and a half and then almost two years. Then I moved to Newport beach. I decided I, I missed being in LA. So I, okay. I continued to work in, um, I actually moved on to publishing. So then I was working in publishing and then eventually I moved back to Los Angeles working in publishing there. And then I linked up with friends that I met in college who were music producers and they were up and coming like just incredibly talented people. And I started writing with them. So it was funny because when I first started working with them, I think they thought because I majored in opera that that meant I was going to write classical music, but everything that came out of me was really soulful. So it was kind of like, Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you writing for somebody else? I'm like, I'm not sure. So at first, maybe I am writing for other people. And then I realized, no, this is me. So if I'm an artist, you know, I have a knack for like R&B, like that's what comes to my brain. <laughs> so. cool. cool. Just a couple of questions. So that time when you were back in Arizona, where mm -hmm. we did, did the longing for music, was that a part of like your reason to move back to California? Absolutely. Yeah. And one of my best, other best friends who I grew up with, she had moved to Newport Beach. So she really pushed for me to move out there and be near her, which is why I went there first. And I think it all just kind of fell into place, you know, pretty quickly for me to go out there, interview, get a really great job with, you know, a publisher out there. And so I just thought, oh, I have a great job and I have a place, you know, I'm just going to go out there. But um, my love for music, it just, it doesn't ever go away. So even when I take a break from it, it always comes back. Um, and then through there, like, I just, um, I can't even remember exactly how I met Seth Riggs, but he was an incredible mentor to me for a few years. I worked with him. Um, and who's Seth Riggs? Seth Riggs invented speech level singing. He's this incredible um, voice coach and like all the great artists that you can, anyone you can think of, he's literally worked with everybody. Um, and a lot of the major voice teachers that are out there now that work with a lot of artists, like he is the reason why they're around. Like he trained them and his method for singing has taught around the world. So he's pretty incredible. He has a studio in Hancock Park um, in his house. And I met some incredible people through him. He actually discovered Josh Groban. Wow. Wow. So you're back in LA, you're linking up with your friends from, from USC, from college, 
and then you're 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 back to creating. You're creating music. You're working with them. They're helping yeah. you produce. Um, yeah. Do you create any demos at this point? Do you create any songs? I did. Um, I've done a bunch of demos actually. So I did some stuff when I was with Seth. Um, I also did some stuff with a bunch of other artists that I met through him. Um, we did original music, but we ended up finding out later that it sounded a little bit dated. So um, I worked with some musicians that had worked with like George Michael and some other people. And so while they're incredibly talented, the sound wasn't quite as current, you know, as it should have been at the time. Um, and then I kind of broke away from that and I discovered uh, R&B Live, which is an, have you, I don't know if you've heard of that showcase, but it's an industry showcase in LA. So my best friend that I mentioned for, um, one of her friends is, you know, I just met all sorts of people that are talented and, you know, know all sorts of people in the music industry. So through her, I met another girl who was in a girl group and had records and stuff back in the day when we were all growing up, was like, you know, a teen, a hit as a teenager. And she knew like one of the producers of the show. So they kind of were like, oh, here's this number, like hit him up. You should try and do this industry showcase. I don't know what I was walking into. I remember I walked in there and I auditioned and they said, okay, so we're going to have you on our show. And I was really excited. So this was a place where it was up and coming artists in the industry. So you would go, you perform at the live band. It was close to only industry people. You had to know somebody to get invited to it. it takes place like in the Valley in LA um, at this restaurant where the whole top floor is basically has like a stage and like there's like all these amazing like artists in there. It's like anybody who's anybody like in R&B or in the music biz were at these shows, which at the time were every week. And so I remember when I went, um, I dressed up as like, a like I wasn't trying to be like a princess, but like I had like really long, like blonde hair and I had like this tutu outfit thing on. I remember that I got from like Betsy Johnson. And at the time, this woman named Kim, she's like a UK um, like personality, like just TV stuff. She was hosting the show. And um, I remember I walked out and she was like, oh, it's a princess, it's a princess. And everybody was laughing and I was like, okay. I didn't know what I was walking into. And so I started the show singing Loving You, the Minnie Riperton song, and she sings pretty high. And I remember as soon as I sang the hook, um, I got a standing ovation. And I remember that night there's, I just really felt like was one of the most special nights of my life just being on that stage. And then all the people that I met, they really helped, you know, change the course of my life. Cause I met my manager that I ended up working with after that, a whole bunch of artists, because I forgot to mention, so it's a bunch of up and coming artists, but then at the end of each show, you open for a major artist. So, I mean, I opened for Eric Benet many times. I've met him multiple times, like all sorts of people. Stevie Wonder showed up a few times. And it was funny because the last time I saw Stevie, I remember it was like the third or fourth time I'd met him and he was at the show and it was, um, it was like during the show and another artist a friend of mine at the time was there talking to him because he knew him and I walked up and I just started blabbing kind of like the Pavarotti thing but now it's like fast forward like years later and I was like um so I met you and I like explained to him how I'd been at the Naris Foundation thing and how you know Minnie Ripperton was actually a protege to him so I was like I just want you to know that since I met you back in high school like I have discovered her and she's incredible and I sing her stuff here all the time and he just smiled and I mean he probably was like could hear half of what I was saying because it was really loud right it was in the club like out you know outside of the stage but I had some amazing experiences there so that's great great I'd love to learn more about the creative process when you link up with a producer mm -hmm. how does it break down when you're actually creating the songs now I know you said you're a writer as well yeah. um do you, do you play the instruments or you just 
write the, the lyrics or how, how is that process from your perspective? Well, that's a great question. Um, so I actually, uh, what I've learned through the years is that I probably should learn how to become a producer because I have songs in my head with like full background music and everything. But when I've tried to relay it to people and some of the most talented people in the world, I can be in a studio with them and tell them what I hear. They're not going to be able to play what I hear in my head just because they're going to try and understand what I'm saying and then they, whatever, you know, then they're going to play whatever they think it is. So um, typically what's been easier for me, um, I work a couple different ways. One is I'll just have melodies and lyrics that come into my brain and I would sing it and the producer will create the music around it. Or the other half of the time, you know, I'll go to a session and I'll hear the music and things that they're already working on. And from there, melodies always come to me first and then lyrics are second. So. But how, I'm sorry, just my light went out over here. Hold on one second. <laughs> no <Stupid> worries. <laughs> yeah. So how the melody, um, like if you, how do you, how would you translate that? I know you said you, you ran into some difficulty with the producers to really make sure that it, it was, what you heard in your head was what they produced, but how would you even go about like translating a melody? Um, I would typically sing it to them or like tell them what I hear, try and, and that's hard because when I'm hearing, depending what the song is, right. Or I'll sing to them, this is what, this is what I'm going to sing over what I want you to, to put together. So when I realized that that wasn't as easy for me to trans have people translate, cause they can't hear what I hear in my brain, obviously. Um, I would just work backwards, which is, okay, I'm going to sing you a melody. What do you have, you know, do you want to work around it? And, but then more off, more oftentimes I'll just hear what they're working on already. I'll say, play me different stuff. And then when I hear something and I, um, I feel inspired by it and I start to hear, I typically hear the melody first and then I will hear the lyrics second. So typically it's the hook, which is like the chorus of the song. Sometimes it's the very first verse, but that's how I work. And that's how I started working with producers. I would just, they'd play me like, okay, come on in here and play me all the different tracks and I'll listen and go, oh, let's work on this one. And sometimes I'll take the music home or like in the session, I'll write it, we'll write part of it, record it, listen to it back. So um, yeah, that's how I start working on stuff. Very cool. And in terms of the lyrics, how does that process? I, mean, I know you said you had a lot of journals throughout your life. Yeah. Like, do you, do, you, do you draw from that, those experiences and try to translate that into a song? How, how does it break down for you? Definitely life experiences. I don't know how to explain it. I just, I feel like it's a gift. I feel like in my brain, I just have so many songs, like a human jukebox. I always joke that I have like few memories. I have way more music memories, like thousands of songs are in my brain. So I don't know. I just, it literally just comes to me. It's like a gift. It's like somebody else is putting something, telling me what to sing and what goes where. And um, I, I just, probably the mood of the music, like my intuition, I just kind of follow what I feel. And from there, I'll make a song. Um, and, you know, life experiences. I know we've all been through a lot of stuff. I can also draw from like friends' experiences or like things that I've read about. But typically, you know, it'd be stuff that I was going through. So, um, but yeah, I actually did a, a reality TV show that never came out. I'm kind of grateful for that. Um, <laughs> grateful? Did it come out? It's about uh, singers and songwriters in the music biz. And we did film this like seven years ago. I met some incredibly talented people and I'm still friends with there as well. I was the only person um, from LA, everybody else on the East Coast. So we filmed it in Jersey and also New York. And I met 
you know, incredibly talented songwriters and producers. And they would basically, the idea was to have us in the studio where they would play the music and it would show people what we just talked about, right? How do you create a song? How do you create a hit? What, what is the process that you go through as a songwriter and as an artist to put something together? And it was really cool because we got to collaborate with different people and just, you know, it was really on the fly. You had like, you know, a three to four hour session and that was it. So you hope you're going to come out of there with something that's good. But I, you know, everybody was really talented. So it was really fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, there's a little bit of drama on the show or stuff they tried to create. So I, I was a little happy that uh, those things didn't come out because I was the token white girl of the show. And I think they tried to play on that and try and do certain things. And it's like, okay, but that's not this stuff isn't really happening, okay? Gotcha, <laughs> We're gotcha. all friends. Like, I'm not, I'm like, yeah, so. Gotcha, gotcha. And you said you have, like, thousands of songs. You're a very musical person. Like, this is all going on in your head. Do you find that to be a detriment at some point? Like, is it overwhelming? Does it affect your emotional well-being? Absolutely. When, it, when, when it's that, when you're that creative? Yeah, I find, uh, I always have a song in my head. 24 hours a day. I'm pretty sure when I'm sleeping, I also have songs in my head because I will dream about music too. I'll dream about being on stage performing songs at award shows and doing things that I haven't done yet, but in my sleep, I'm doing it it's in my dreams. So I always thought everybody else had those things too. I think I've, I'm pretty good at putting it, like right now I have a song in my head, like now, you know, there you go. Like a song that I wrote that I recorded years ago, but it's like, I um, thought everybody else had that too. I have only learned recently that nobody else, like only certain people I know get songs in their heads like that. So I have to find ways to focus on other things. I'm pretty good at drowning it out, but it's always there. It's kind of weird, <laughs> but it's who I am, so. Gotcha. Yeah. And I wanna talk a little bit about live performing versus studio singing. Like what, what are the two different processes like? Is there a different way to interpret the song? Um, on stage as versus in a studio like how how do you go about performing to a crowd as opposed to being in a studio and singing well it's very different because when you're in a studio um it well it depends where you are so you can be you know if you're in like a major recording studio then you're going to be in the booth by yourself with the music playing and you're just um that's it, right? And you're hearing yourself back and you're creating and doing whatever it is that you're doing. Or you might be like in a home studio setting where it's more relaxed and there's people there. So it depends which environment that is, but it's very different because it's more like an intimate setting when you're in the studio and you're really just creating or, I mean, regardless, even if it's a song you already wrote, like you're still creating and you're fixing and you're adding and you're, for me, like I'm in my own element and a special zone. Um, but when I'm performing, it's completely different because now I'm thinking about all sorts of different things when I'm singing. And when I'm in a studio, I'm laser focused on the song and whatever it is that we're doing in my whole brain. That's all I'm thinking about. I'm not worried about how I look when I'm singing, what people are thinking when I'm like, I don't care about any of that. But when I'm performing half the time, you know, I'll be into the song. So it's number one, like I'm pretty like, um, kind of like I've realized I'm more of like an empath. So I'm very like sensitive to people and their emotions. So I have to figure out how to like, not think about what people are doing or don't care about any of that. Um, so if I cannot see the crowd, it makes it a little bit easier for me to just kind of focus on what I'm doing. And it also depends where I'm performing because, you know, I performed for thousands of people and I performed for, you know, 10 people. So like, what is the setting here exactly? Um, but typically I just have to think, okay, don't think about what those people are doing. And then 
sometimes when I'm singing, I'll think, well, what's the next line? Am I going to forget it? Like I've had that come up before because I get so into the song, I um, start to wonder what comes next. It's just kind of an interesting process that I go through, but I love being on stage. I love performing. Like there's nothing like it for me with the live band is the best feeling in the world. And some of the performances that I've done with live bands, like on a stage, it's just, it's so fun. Like the thrill of working with people that are so talented and then kind of being able to be extra creative because now it's live. So you don't, you know, as long as the band is good and they know what they're doing, like you guys can all work together. You can make a song last 10 minutes or you can end it early if you're not feeling it or whatever you need to do, right? You can just be authentic in the moment and I really enjoy it. That's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, I know we were talking about this earlier, but you did have a, a recent performance and you're yeah, continuing to, 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 uh, to sing and, and, and uh, get out there. So what, what's going on now? What, what's uh, yeah. in terms of music? Yeah. So, you know, I took a break over the past, like almost five years from the music biz. I just stepped out for a bit and um, I think now, you know, I moved to Arizona. So I left LA and I left a lot of people back there that I love and I miss, but I want to be near my family out here. So, you know, I've just really just been involved with a lot of media and working, you know, from radio and now I'm over in TV and I love everybody I work with. They're all amazing. And I love what I do and I still get to be creative. Um, for a while I was writing jingles and doing some other things where I just came from. So now it's, you know, uh, people started to find out that I was a singer. Like I kind of kept a lot of my past and things that I've done like close to my heart and didn't really share too much. Like people would find out, oh, you went to USC, majored in opera. Yeah. And then I kind of just changed the subject, you know, but one of my clients a few years ago owned a karaoke um, bar, well, kind of like a club out here with like individual karaoke rooms. And I started singing there and then, you know, we had events with different, you know, recording artists that came into town with the radio group and they had me like sing some stuff. So people started finding out and people have been kind of for the past, you know, two years been like, okay, Julie, like we're ready for you. And I met different artists and different people from, you know, different labels and stuff working at Power 98.3, which is where I just left recently. Um, it's like the number one hip hop, you know, R&B station here. There's also a power in LA and then I think there's one in New York too. Um, and so from there, I started meeting more artists and like local artists out here and people, you know, through the pandemic that have kind of just decided Arizona was their home for a bit because they couldn't really travel. So um, I'm excited. I'm going to start working with some friends and been getting in touch with other friends too. I just was trying to figure out when was the right time for me to really start. So um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I definitely have some more music I'm going to do. I actually got back in the studio for the first time in years the end of last year, I decided I wanted to record some music for my parents as like um, a special birthday gift slash like thank you for them being supportive all these years and um, I surprised them. So I recorded this music by this artist, Laura Fabian. And when I worked with Seth Riggs like a million years ago, he was one of her artists and he had me sing some of her stuff. And so I still had her background music and I knew my parents really loved this one song that I had recorded from her album. So I re-recorded um, three of her songs, but, you know, sang them how I want to at one of my best friend's studios. And he has like this incredible equipment and he's also super talented rock star, amazing musician and like human being. And that was really fun. So he had never seen me sing like that. And we've been friends for years. And um, just because I haven't been singing like that, like I said, since I've been out here. So being in the studio with him singing, he was like, I have to record you doing this because he's like, it's like you're on stage. And I haven't, I'm like, oh, thank you. And so from there, after I recorded those songs, 
um, people started hearing them and like my family passed them around. They asked with my permission. And so the word has kind of gotten out more, not just like, you know, like in the pop or like, you know, hip hop community out here, but also like in opera and musical theater and people um, that are friends with my parents found out and they're pretty connected and are involved in that type of music. So from there, I was asked to do a performance and I did, yeah, I sang on Wednesday night. Um, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do just because I've sang so many different things and I can sing different things. But what I realized is um, it's a little bit without having like a live band or like somebody to accompany me. Um, I figured it was better to stick to stuff that was a little bit more like classical sounding. So no R&B. Well, actually I did do an Aretha for like, they wanted me to do an encore. So I pulled one of my Aretha Franklin songs out and that was really fun. And that recording didn't sound so cheesy, but um, I did like some Phantom of the Opera and then I sang some Laura Fabian. And then I ended it with Never Enough from The Greatest Showman. So if you've heard that song, um, I mean, the first time I heard it in the theater, I remember when I watched the movie, I bawled my eyes out. So I just thought that should be me. Like, I love that song. It really speaks to me. So that's what I ended with. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, I've been asked to do some other stuff. So we'll see what comes up next. That's so awesome. Is there anywhere we can hear your music now? Is it online anywhere? No. <laughs> uh, okay. I don't have anything up right now. I will be probably releasing some stuff soon. Maybe some of those cover songs that I did. And I'm going to start working on some other stuff. But I mean, as of now, um, yeah, I'm looking at maybe doing a podcast and some other things, so. Cool, a lot of good things in the works, that's great. Well, yeah, the really interesting trajectory in terms of your career, in terms of your creative process, so um, I found it really intriguing. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to, to finalize the podcast. I don't want to mean to put you on the spot, but I'd love to know five songs that just speak to you like that really hit you emotionally and that always bring about some sort of emotional impact when you hear them. And uh, I'd love to, to, to just to pick your brain and, and hear those five songs and why, why, why do they mean something to you? Wow. That's a great question. Um, um, I don't know that I just have five. Um. That's, that, that's the hard part, but just randomly, like it doesn't, it's just off the top of your head, just like five songs. If you want, I, I could go first. Okay, yeah, you go All right. first. Okay, so I'll go first. First off, I'm a huge, I'm from Jersey, so a big Springsteen fan. Thunder Road by Springsteen hits me every time. The desperation in that song, the honesty in that song is so truthful and real and authentic. It just, it speaks to me every time I hear it. Um, something that might be a little surprising to people is there this, this other song by Mary Chapin Carpenter. She's a singer out of Nashville in the 80s and 90s. She has a song called The Hard Way. Every time I hear that song, it rocks me. I listen to it almost every day. It's just, again, the honesty, the, the truthfulness that's in that song always speaks to me. I would say um, Frank Sinatra, My Way. What, I mean, another Jersey guy. And I think a lot of what you said related to what I saw in his documentary in terms of the communication process of bringing those songs to life and, and just that whole approach, I think was really interesting. And it, it, it related to a lot what you had to say, but My Way, just such a perfect song in terms of like the determination beating the odds. Um, Beach Boys, I'll have to pick the Beach Boys as well. Wouldn't it be nice? Just a perfect pop song. You can hear the Phil Spector influence in that. Just, just a beautiful song. And lastly, um, I will have to say, uh, 
Uh, let's see. I'm going to say um, I'm going to say, and I'll pick another Springsteen song because I'm such a big fan. Uh, I'm on fire. I think that's a really powerful song and just simple, uh, honest, truthful, just the rawness really speaks to me. So, and there, in that's what's such a great thing about music. It just, it influences us and it just really just, uh, brings about emotion and feelings and memories and like, you know, you know how it is. Like when you hear a song, it just brings you right back to that time. Like when you first heard it and there's nothing like that. There's just nothing like that. So those are my five. If you only want to pick three, that's fine. But what are just some songs that really speak to you as we finalize this podcast? I have like too many. So as a kid, Beat It by Michael Jackson. Okay. song. There you go. Um, like Lauryn Hill, The X Factor. I love that record. Such a good record. Um, I like Led Zeppelin, Dazed and Confused. I have that record in my head now. That's actually fun to sing karaoke, believe it or not. <laughs> I'm not expecting that to come out of me. Um Gosh, Bob Marley, like, I'm like, yeah, you can tell my music taste is like all over the place. Um, favorite aria of all time, I think I told you before, was when Renee Fleming sang the Puy Le Jour. It's just beautiful. Um, gosh, yeah, I love, I mean, I absolutely love R&B, so I could list like 30 songs right now that I love in that genre. Um, yeah, those are like, all the ones I could think of. I mean, there's just so many. There's artists. so many. Yeah, I know. Like, I got you. Gripperton for sure. Like some of her records that she did are just a lot of her stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Awesome. Well, Julie, thank you so much. We wish you all the best. This has been great. I was really interested in, in your history and, and your creative approach. So can't thank you enough. Um, can you please keep us updated. And uh, when you release the music, we'd love to hear it. Thank and you. all the best. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. You too.